It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Today is Sunday, May 24th, 2020. On this day in 1961, a group of civil rights activists rode a bus into Jackson, Mississippi. Despite federal protections, all riders were jailed, labeled criminals for entering a bus stop. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Today we're covering the historic arrest of the Freedom Riders, who crusaded for racial equality throughout the American South. Their May 24th arrests marked a pivotal moment in ending segregation. Let's turn back time some six decades to the morning of May 24th, 1961, in Jackson, Mississippi. It was a hot day in Mississippi when a bus carrying 13 Freedom Riders entered the town of Jackson. But the heat was nothing compared to their fears. The Freedom Riders' mission was to enter bus stations and attempt to use the white-only restaurants and bathrooms. When asked to leave, they would stand their ground. If attacked, they would not fight back with physical force. These tactics centered around Gandhian principles of nonviolence. Now, what they were doing was technically legal, but as it happened, many folks in the South were not ready to accept the equality of all. And they would stop at nothing to protect their discriminating ideologies. In the weeks that preceded the May 24th journey, There had already been several outbreaks of severe violence from white supremacists. At one rest stop, an angry mob roared in protest of the Freedom Riders. But when they tried to move along, someone in the crowd threw a bomb at their bus. When the riders escaped, they were brutally beaten with baseball bats and steel rods. The extreme display of discrimination only confirmed their fears. Despite a federal ruling that banned any form of segregation by race in all public transportation facilities, rampant racism persisted. The May 24, 1961 ride was bound to be different from the others. Just three days before, President Kennedy had ordered protection for the Freedom Riders, hoping to prevent further violence. So the two buses that traveled to Jackson were loaded with armed troops who carried bayonets. Behind them, 16 patrol cars drove while a helicopter flew overhead. As the old Greyhound bus station appeared through the windows of the first bus, the activists held their breath. Two of them were 17-year-old Julia Aaron and 20-year-old David Dennis, Like most of the other riders, they were young, but they knew what had happened to the previous passengers on the Freedom Rides. 
Silence on the bus seemed to echo a shared curiosity about just what fates they might find in the coming hour. Then, suddenly, one voice broke out in song. Riding on this big greyhound, carrying love from town to town, keep your eyes on the prize, hold on. Everyone joined in. One thing was certain, whatever awaited them, they were determined to brave the storm. Then the bus came to a screeching halt. Anticipation had risen dramatically as word of the Freedom Riders had spread across the South. Outside the station, hundreds of Jackson citizens watched, waiting to see how the act of protest would unfold. At the trailway station, the National Guardsmen stepped off the bus first, followed by the 13 Freedom Riders. One by one, the courageous crusaders exited the vehicle and passed through a heavy cordon of Jackson police officers. Some still donned the bandages covering wounds incurred in Alabama. The activists then entered the station. A few of them walked to a restroom marked white only, while others headed into a white-only coffee shop. Customers stared and then froze as police approached. The officer ordered them to move on, but the Freedom Riders did not. Instead, they stood their ground quietly. Whispers from onlookers grew loud. Their military escorts would be of no help to them. After all, they'd only been ordered to protect the riders from violence. They couldn't argue with state police. When the activists didn't move from the whites-only area, the policemen again ordered that they leave immediately. But after this second order, the Freedom Riders still did not move. Each and every one of them was arrested and led outside to a waiting police car. Hours later, the second of the buses sent from Montgomery arrived at the station. The riders knew that the others had been arrested, but they wanted to see their mission through. One Freedom Rider, Ernest Rip Patton, who was 21 years old at the time, recalled the events. He said, I got to the front door. I never did get inside the building, and I was under arrest. No one on the second bus would ever make it inside the station. By the end of the day on May 24, 1961, 27 Freedom Riders had been arrested. Their charge? Disturbing the peace. Next, the Freedom Riders are forced to ride their efforts all the way to Parchman Penitentiary, one of the worst prisons in America at the time. Now, back to the story. On May 24, 1961, the Freedom Riders drove safely into Jackson, Mississippi, accompanied by U.S. federal marshals, only to be arrested on the spot at the bus station. It certainly wasn't what the riders expected, but it was exactly what the authorities expected. U.S. Attorney General Robert Kennedy had actually struck a deal with Mississippi Senator James Eastland. The presidential order for military escorts to accompany the Freedom Riders was no act of kindness. After outbreaks of violence had erupted at bus stations in Alabama, Kennedy didn't want more bloody headlines. So he proposed an agreement with Eastland. 
In exchange for the protection of the Freedom Riders on their journey to the rest terminal, they would be arrested on the spot and sent to jail. As the activists were held in custody, Robert Kennedy issued a statement urging people to halt their travels until Mississippi and Alabama had a cooling off period. James Farmer, head of the Congress of Racial Equality, responded to Kennedy saying, we have been cooling off for 350 years, and if we cooled off any more, we'd be in a deep freeze. The Freedom Riders would not back down. At their trial, the judge turned and looked at the wall rather than listen to the defense of the 27 Freedom Riders. Then he gave them the maximum judgment for disturbing the peace. They were sentenced to two months at ill-maintained Parchman Prison with bail set at $200. There, under direct order from Mississippi's governor, the guards subjected them to psychological abuse to break their spirit. Strategically, every rider stayed in jail for the full length of their conviction. One freedom rider, Congressman John Lewis, remembers his experience entering the facility. We had to walk right into the prison and take off all of our clothes. We stood there for at least two hours without clothes, and I just felt that it was an attempt to belittle and dehumanize us. But the poor treatment persisted long past entry. Parchman Penitentiary was a low-slung brick building surrounded by dirt rows and fields. It evoked a plantation, having formerly been the site of one, and prisoners were treated like slaves. During the days, many were forced to pick cotton while linked together on a chain. They worked six days a week, and guards routinely beat them while they were restrained. Psychological and physical abuse persisted, but nonviolent protests from their prison cells remained an effective tactic. While crammed in six by eight foot cells with more inmates than the small space could fit, the activists communicated with each other through song. It was this resilience that wore at Mississippi's incarceration system. Over 300 Freedom Riders were sent to the jail that summer, and their efforts were not in vain. As they crowded Parchman Prison, they drew international attention. Public outcry for the activists painted almost every newspaper in the country. It was this widespread public admonishment that forced Attorney General Robert Kennedy to petition for the outlaw of segregation in interstate travel. Finally, in September 1961, the Interstate Commerce Commission, which ran public transit, imposed sanctions and penalties for violation of anti-segregation laws. Three months later, the new order went into nationwide effect. Passengers were permitted to sit wherever they pleased on interstate buses and trains. White and colored signs were removed from the terminals. Drinking fountains, toilets, and waiting rooms for interstate customers were no longer segregated. The facility restaurants served all customers, regardless of race. Today, the fight for racial equality remains an ongoing pursuit, but we honor the Freedom Riders, whose crime of disrupting the peace sparked necessary change.
Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. For more stories of power struggles and political intrigue, check out the ParCast original, Political Scandals. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Lauren DeLille, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 